Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, uh, ready for a bit of scriptural geekery? I know I am. It's been too long. This is Robert M. Price, your host for The Bible Geek. And uh, I would like to start on a somber note and just observe, in case you hadn't heard, uh, the death of R.C. Sproul, who was a reform, that is, Calvinist theologian and uh, a an apologist, and uh, he was, I guess, the founder and certainly the leader of the Ligonier Study Center. Uh, he uh, is someone with whom I... Uh, as you would expect, uh, do not agree at all uh, in in beliefs. But I want to uh, note his passing because uh, he was a significant figure in dialogue about all these issues, and especially, I I guess, uh, the reason that he uh, uh, sticks out in my mind is years, decades ago, I read his book, The Psychology of Atheism, which I just found and still find to be a brilliant piece of work. Uh, he so insightfully weaves Freud and Rudolf Otto together. Uh, I mean, two thinkers you wouldn't think uh, have uh, much common ground, but uh, Sproul really uh, melds some of their insights together in a way that uh, just very cogently explains atheism, albeit from a Christian point of view. I I don't think he necessarily proves that uh, his debunking of atheism, but that's sort of not the point. The point is that from his paradigm, uh, in which I do not operate, uh, he has come up with a very innovative and insightful way of explaining atheism as the mysterium tremendum uh, repressed by the person who, a la Romans 1, turns away from God, finding it too traumatic. And uh, it's it's just a fascinating book. I, I believe a short version of it came out years later called If There's a God, Why Are There Atheists? I'm sure that's good, too. But if you can get the original, it's not that long a book. I, I think you'd enjoy it. Uh, I, uh, of course... Uh, am a non-theist, um, but uh, I think it's great to uh, look at uh, what all sides have to say on the matter. And uh, he was a brilliant man. It's too bad he's not with us anymore. Uh, there, there, of course, are other evangelical apologists whose work I uh, value highly, like uh, John Warwick Montgomery. Again, I, I don't any longer agree with him, but uh, he's, uh, again, very innovative, uh, very fascinating. I hope he'll uh, be with us for a long time. 
Uh, let's see. I'd like to recommend something to you. Uh, there is in the latest issue of uh, Free Inquiry uh, an article by Joe Nickel, and you you uh, probably know him as a as a paranormal investigator. <clears throat> For about fifty years, he's followed up all kinds of claims of ghost stories and so forth and uh he's uh if you ever get the chance to meet him you should because he's just a delightful and funny uh, guy and very brilliant also he uh did a let's see now what's the title of this thing uh okay i had this open a moment ago and now it's hiding from me typically yeah um of faith and reason evidence for miracles does a cold case approach redeem the gospel accounts uh this is a uh, a book review of an apologist's work and uh let's see i think it's oh, oh oops thought i had this one what a what a slick professional I am! It's uh, oh, where the heck is the title of this book? Yeah, okay. Well, actually, it's a book from 2013. Cold Case Christianity: A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. Uh, it's by J. Warner Wallace. And uh, I, I think uh, you'd uh, much enjoy that if you uh, enjoy the Bible Geek, uh, which I'm assuming you do. Okay, um, some who enjoy the Bible Geek have written to me recently saying, uh, what the heck happened to the uh, Bible Geek shows on talk show for the last couple of years? The links don't work anymore. Well, uh, TalkShoe did contact me and others saying that they had some sort of crash and lost uh, a whole bunch of files, uh, and they're still not sure they're going to be able to get them back. Uh, but our uh, frequent questioner, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, great Charles Power, has uh, come to our rescue here. He has them on a site of his own uh, called Biblioteco, uh, B-I-B-L-I-O-T-E-K-O, and here is the uh, URL. Now, I know this is always a nuisance to give these long things, and I'll say it a couple of times so you can write it down, and maybe I'll say it again at the end. HTTPS colon slash slash drive dot Google dot com slash drive slash folders um slash I guess it's zero capital B small X eight lowercase y, capital H, lowercase f, capital L, lowercase cg, capital T, lowercase i, capital Y, capital L, capital X, capital F, lowercase o, capital Z, uh, lowercase m, t, p, capital T, lowercase j, capital F, 
five lowercase e capital w capital m question mark lowercase u lowercase s lowercase p equals sign sharing all lowercase now uh, then you go to underscore radio all in lowercase slash Robert M. Price, and in my name, the R, the M, and the P are capitalized. The rest is not, and there's no period after the M. Okay, let me try this again. H-T-T-P-S slash slash lowercase drive dot lowercase google dot lowercase com slash lowercase drive slash folders lowercase slash zero capital B lowercase x eight lowercase y capital H lowercase f capital L lowercase c lowercase g capital T lowercase i capital y capital l capital x capital f lowercase o capital z lowercase m lowercase t lowercase p capital t lowercase j capital f 5 lowercase e capital W, capital M, question mark, lowercase USP uh, equals sign, and lowercase sharing. And then you go to underscore lowercase radio slash Robert M. Price, no, no period after the M, and uh, just RMP capitalized. Maybe if I remember, I'll go over that again at the end but uh, that's where you'll find all the ones missing from talk show and extra super thanks to charles for that okay um uh this is from fritz an american expatriate in guatemala says, with Christmas right around the corner, I was hoping if you could say something about the biblical origins of our holiday season, if any. Last week, I went with the family to see La Quema del Diablo, or Burn the Devil, in Antigua, Guatemala. How much of what we think of as Christmas is biblical, and how much of it is some kind of syncretism? Well, um, that's pretty easy to uh, to define, uh, to delineate. The uh, birth of Jesus in a manger certainly happens in uh, in Luke, where um, excuse me, sorry, where Mary and Joseph uh, go to uh, Bethlehem to be registered for the taxation census and. Since the town is filled with people there for the same reason, uh, they uh, there's no room any place uh, in the in the Holiday Inn or the Marriott or anything like that. Excuse me. Um, and so the best they can do is to find a stable. Um, however, there is a little bit of ambiguity there because the Greek phrase "born in a stable." 
actually could be translated born on the open ground. Uh, but it's the same sort of uh, point anyway. Uh, let's see, the notion of the shepherds and the angels attending the birth of uh, of Jesus, uh, that is biblical, but not in the, well, if you want to say syncretism, this is intra-biblical syncretism, because the the angels come from Luke's nativity story, uh, the uh, shepherds from uh, Matthew's, wait a minute, am I right about that? No, what am I saying? Snap out of it, Price. Both of <laughs> <laughs> the uh, angels and the shepherds are in Luke, because the angels tell the shepherds, get your butts over there and greet the Christ child. But the wise men uh, appear in uh, Matthew. Uh, not only are each group unrepresented in the other gospel, but they wouldn't have been there at the same time, uh, in all probability, since Matthew seems to indicate that the, uh, the uh, magi, or the wise men from the east, uh, arrived when Jesus was possibly two years old, which would mean he's, he's uh, home. And in fact, in Matthew, he's born in Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph live. Uh, they don't, there's no, nothing about a tax census and all that. So the uh, usual Christmas story combines elements from Matthew and Luke, even when they don't fit together. Uh, let's see, uh, what about the wise guys, or the wise men from the east? Well, they appear to be Parthian astrologers. That's who the Magi or Magoi were. Uh, they were. It was a general term for astrologers, magicians, etc. Keep in mind that Simon Magus, uh, Simon the Sorcerer, uh, Simon of Gitta in uh, Acts chapter uh, 8, is it? Um, he's got the same title. Uh, so um, they were, and, and indeed what they tell Herod the Great makes it explicit that they're astrologers, right? They're scanning the sky and interpreting celestial phenomena appearing in particular constellations as signaling great events uh, in each nation assigned to each constellation. And so they've seen a star appear, what was it, in Pisces, I forget, uh, doesn't say in the Bible, but the, the theories would say that, because they, they, they viewed that as uh, denoting the Jews. This kind of fits in with Daniel, where uh, each uh, country has its own angel that fights on its behalf, and that angels are associated with stars and so on. Uh, so uh, now it doesn't say they're kings, as in the, all the Christmas cards and the hymns. No, uh, doesn't at all. Uh, there's there's no reason they would be kings. Do they represent different ethnicities? Nah, they're they're all Parthians. Uh, let's see, uh, were, are they named Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior? Nope. In fact, it's one of the tendencies of accumulating legend that originally nameless characters are given names and uh, more description, but they're, they're simply said to be uh, uh, astrologers from, uh, from the East. As Raymond Brown says, it's very likely that that whole story in Matthew is based on the arrival of some Parthian kings. They were kings in this. Maybe that's maybe somebody caught on to that and made that explicit in Matthew's version. Uh, but the kings from Parthia 
it's an empire, so there were several local kings uh, who came with uh, Tiridates to the coronation of Nero as Roman emperor, and they worshipped him as a god before going back to their country by a different route. And uh, I think that is no doubt the origin of it. But yeah, uh, there there are an unnamed. There's a group of unnamed. Parthian Magi, and uh, it says they came from the east, uh, literally from the sunrise, or Anatolia. Of course, there's actually a region over there named that. It means uh, the, uh, the the sunrise. And, and in fact, that passage in Matthew could be, we saw, you know, they say, we saw his star when it arose. You could just as well translate, uh, we we saw, I mean, usually here we saw his star in the east, you could easily say, and maybe this would be better actually given the context, we saw his star when it arose, and it arose two years before, right? Uh, And that's why uh, Herod says, I want you to kill all the uh, babies and toddlers up to two years old, right? Because he could have been born any time in that range. Um see what else um are christmas trees remotely biblical well of course there's no such thing in the nativity stories but some people think that christmas trees are prophetically denounced in the book of jeremiah where it um, ridicules and excoriates people that go to the forest cut down a tree uh, deck it with silver and gold and so on and put it in their house well that that's striking, but it's grossly out of context. It's very clear that this is almost a Xerox of a passage in Isaiah, though you don't need the parallel to see this. Uh, it's about people that go chop down a tree trunk, uh, denude it of the bark and branches, cover it with silver and gold plating, and make a, an image out of it, though not necessarily much of one, like the the Asherim that are denounced in the Deuteronomic history of the Bible, uh, the images of uh, Asherah, the queen of heaven, we we have some of them that were just wooden sticks painted and stuck into the ground. I mean, there's not much sculpture going on there. Uh, so uh, the uh, they may not even have done much carving to these uh, so-called images of the gods they were making, but that's what Jeremiah is denouncing. Uh, pagan idolatry that we would, you know, if we saw it, we it would never occur to us to associate it with a Christmas tree. Again, excuse me. Um, uh, so that's not in there. Where do we get the Christmas tree then? Well, there nobody really knows, but there's one legend or report or rumor. I don't know that uh, that uh, as Martin Luther was hurrying home uh, on Christmas Eve from the shopping mall where he was buying his uh, last minute gifts. He's passing under a a tree and happens to look up and see the stars through the branches and thought, boy, that looks so great. I bet we could make a replica of that in our home. And, uh, you know, that's the Christmas tree, because especially since, incredibly, people used to put lit candles on the branches. How many house fires did that produce? Uh, and uh, but th- that's not at all unlikely. It makes sense. It certainly must also 
uh, represent even older customs of bringing greenery, evergreen boughs and stuff into the house to uh, affirm that uh, life would return to vegetation in the spring, even though there's none out there now except for the evergreens. Let's bring some into the house uh, to remind us and so on. Uh, that seems to be going on in there also. Uh, where do we get Christmas ghost stories, uh, which are even mentioned in uh, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year? Right? There'll be scary ghost stories. Uh-huh. Why? Well, think of Dickens and M.R. James, who wrote... Uh, James would read a, a new ghost story to his buddies every Christmas Eve, I think. Uh, why? Well... This goes way back there to pagan times when it was thought that the veil between the worlds was considerably thinner at Christmas time and, of course, Halloween and so on. They had Celtic names for them and all that. And so that ghosts might appear then. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's uh, not technically you know biblical it's uh, it comes from other sources so there would be your syncretism again uh what about gift giving uh, this uh, of course is based on uh on the visit of the uh unnamed magi uh, and there are three gifts that are mentioned, as you know, obviously anybody knows this, even if they know nothing else about the Bible. Uh, there are gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, so a kind of incense, and myrrh is, uh, is an ointment like uh, one of the women anoints Jesus with in one of the Gospels, uh, kind of like spikenard. So on. Uh, well, based on, on this, the ancients inferred there were three magi. And that's not a bad inference, but technically, you know, it, it doesn't say there was a gift from each one of these guys. That's not a, not unreasonable, right? Uh, but it technically doesn't say it. And some of the ancient church figured there were 12 magi, interestingly. It doesn't really say. I mean, I'm not sure where they got that number. So the, the three is a, certainly a reasonable guess. Uh, just doesn't actually say it. And uh, uh, the gift giving, well, of course, uh, you know, in the uh, in Italy, they have, instead of Santa Claus, the three kings who come to give gifts. And uh, that's, uh, and of course, you, that's what you're celebrating by giving gifts, especially to children, right? It's like they're representing the, the Christ child. And you, the parents, are like the Magi, and I think that's pretty spiffy. People complain about materialism at Christmas. I, I'm sorry, but I just can't see that. Uh, I don't see that as a problem um, because you're affirming the goodness of the, the creation, if you will, uh, and, uh, and of gift-giving and the joy that brings. You know, Jesus says in Acts, and they quote him saying it is more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, well, either way, you got that covered. Uh, it's blessed to give, so why not? And people that bemoan the materialism and the commercialism uh, of Christmas, have you forgotten that this is how merchants make money? I mean, they're not like some sort of uh, 
fiendish tempter saying, aha, we can uh, get people to be less spiritual, more materialistic. Yeah, what are you, the Gnostic or something? Uh, so I, I don't see that as, uh, I mean, nowhere do they say, you know, do this in remembrance of me, give a lot of Christmas gifts, uh, the more expensive the better, but it seems to me certainly a, a good application of that story. Uh, what else? How about the talking animals? Well, if it's a stable, they infer the presence of animals. Uh, but there's, uh, as Raymond Brown points out, there's something, geez, where is it, in Isaiah or something, about the faithlessness of Israel. And it says, uh, the horse knows its master, the uh, the donkey heeds his voice, but Israel, my people, ignore me. Well, somebody plucked that out of context, and uh, they figured, well, the, the animals in the stable uh, know who, they recognize their master, Jesus. Uh, again, that's pretty cute. It's uh, It involves an ancient type of exegesis that we would call eisegesis, right? Reading stuff into the text. and um, But uh, it's quite interesting to see how these traditions uh, morph and evolve. Now, is there anything to Santa Claus? Well, not biblically, but he is supposed to be uh, based on Saint Nicholas of Myra, and uh, this is a guy that that may have been present at the Council of Nicaea and voted for uh, the Homoousios Christology, and uh, his own holy day is December sixth, and uh, he was a great uh, friend of children and all that, so it fits pretty well if you're going to come up with somebody. Uh, so. Um, but you you can so that's you know was there a historical Santa? Well, yeah, there was uh, Saint Nicholas of Myra back in the fourth century. Though Santa, as he's depicted, uh, the uh, white bearded, jolly old elf in the uh, red suit and all that, there's one speculation that this was based on. Uh, one of the representations of Dionysus in ancient Greek religion that uh, he was that he appeared as in, sometimes as the elder Dionysus with a white beard and so on, and that he wore red robes and uh, they would act out this um, once a year when they would have him in a boat shaped sleigh riding into town with gifts for people. Now I'm not sure what the origin of that is. It may be an invention. But I think that's part of uh, the ancient Dionysus religion, at least in some places. So it, you know, it could be that uh, that that has a very ancient, even pre-Christian origin. What about Santa coming down the chimney? Well, of course that can't be. I mean, unless you want to take this thing from. Uh, Mark 13 is a prophecy of Santa coming down the chimney where it says, uh, if you're on the roof at the time, don't go down into your house, but uh, descend from the roof and get out of there. But of course, that's that's fortuitous. Um, well, it, it does at least play on very ancient universal sacred imagery of the axis mundi, the, the world axis that uh, connects heaven and earth, uh, like Jacob's ladder with the angels going up and down on uh, missions and reporting back. Uh, 
and uh, their their uh, Mount Olympus, Mount Sinai, Yggdrasil, the the World Tree, etc. All of these are uh, are um, symbols of the Axis Mundi. And uh, and just as the angels descend, here is Santa Claus descending down the uh, the house axis, the chimney, to to dispense gifts. Uh, the, the what the, the chimney is the axis mundi? Well, yeah, because uh, ancient temples were built as models of the universe as the ancient peoples imagined it, and so they would have an altar, uh, and the sacrificial smoke would rise from it and go through the smoke hole at the top of it, and this symbolized prayers going up the axis in from earth to heaven. Well, um. Even the book of Revelation mentions that, right? And so uh, once a temple was built, the same pattern would be used uh, in the construction of houses. And so they too would have uh, some sort of fireplace with a smoke hole above it. Of course, you need that, right, to get rid of all the soot and the smoke and so on. And uh, so a, a chimney actually is based on, beside its utilitarian function, on this very ancient imagery of uh, sacred space, the Axis Mundi. Well, I'm probably boring you stiff with this, but that is the origin of some of these things. Uh, let me see. Uh, oh, yeah, here is one thing I wanted to mention. There is a, you know, I, I lost a... Uh, one episode of the Bible Geek through some kind of inexplicable glitch in Audacity, which is the program I use here. And uh, so I want to answer some of those questions again in shorter compass in a moment. But there was one very long question that was very good, and uh, I have one little quote from it I saved to put on our Know, a posted list of questions, and I want to read that to you, but I don't want to answer that one today. I want to get the whole text in front of me, because there was a lot to address in it, and it was very good, but I don't know who sent it. I cannot find it in my uh, file of mail and all that. This is all I have of it. Let me read it to you, and if you sent this question, would you please send me the whole thing again, uh, assuming you still have it. Here is, do you agree that the experience of encountering the transcendent slash sacred slash numinous slash ineffable or of trying to induce that encounter is the original or ultimate goal of the religious impulse? Is it um, legitimate to talk about the, quote, true, unquote, meaning of religious language in these terms, even if religious people, ancient or modern, would not necessarily recognize or even understand such an interpretation? So if that is your question, uh, I ask you to resend me the whole thing of which that is a part, and I will deal with it, because uh, I did it some length, and I thought it was a, a good um, uh, little speech, so I'd uh, like to deal with that again if you can uh, help me out on there. Uh, let's see, as to other questions from that lost episode, somebody says that uh, someone they were talking to claimed that the Talmud is a, represents, I guess, a fourth religion, 
besides Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and is not a Jewish text. What could this mean? Uh, well, I uh, think it's possible that somebody is trying to say that this vast body of traditions and interpretations and so on is is so complex that it it virtually makes the Jewish religion into another religion that uh, Judaism as it was practiced even in New Testament times was not remotely as complicated and uh, so perhaps whoever said this is trying to say come on it's not even the same religion anymore now I think it's meaningful to draw a similar distinction between the religion of ancient Israel, the pre-Deuteronomic faith, which was polytheistic and so on, uh, and Judaism as we know it. Uh, that's meaningful. I know some Jews don't like that because they want to say, no, our religion goes way back. Well, it, it does, but I guess it's like a uh, a question of taxonomy, where are you going to draw the lines and impose the categories? And I don't think there's any hard and fast way of doing that, but at least there is an understandable point to drawing such a distinction. I guess the reason some Jews don't like it is is easily understandable because this kind of thing, this kind of distinction is made invidiously by uh, Christian identity lunatics and, and anti-Semites who uh, want to say, oh, we're, we're good Christians, we believe in the whole Bible. Uh, yes, Israel was God's chosen people, but uh, today's so-called Jews are not Israelites, that they're Khazar, uh, Asiatic converts or something, which, again, there's kind of a point to that, uh, but it, it is a theory that um, Arthur Kostler had that, that there were a lot of Asian converts to Judaism and uh, that they're, they're a powerful segment of Judaism today. It's possible, but this idea of trying to drive a wedge between biblical Israel and modern Jews, uh, that's uh, very dubious and, and is used in a nefarious way. And so I understand the hesitation to even say there's a distinction between the religion of ancient Israel and what we know as Judaism. Uh, but uh, I certainly don't have that in mind, nor do the biblical scholars who do draw that. And they're just trying to, you know, demarcate stages of evolution of the religion, not... Uh, trying to sever the one from the other. Okay, that's possibly what they mean. And uh, there are there are medieval Jews like the Karaites who uh, repudiated rabbinism, as they called it, as, as false Judaism. Maybe they're making a claim like that. Um, just in the way that, you know, fundamentalist Protestants will sometimes say Roman Catholics aren't really Christian. It could be that's what they mean. Uh, but uh, another possibility, no less uh, strange, uh, is that maybe this person was referring to an odd book called the Talmud of Gemmanuel, uh, which is kind of a 
diatessaron-like harmony of the Gospels, uh, squeezing all the stories in where they seem to fit to come up with one big Gospel narrative, uh, interwoven with all kinds of uh, flying saucer weirdness about Jesus being a space alien and so forth. Uh, And it's just, it's also anti-Semitic, by the way. Uh, And I, I did a chapter on this in my book, um, Jesus is Dead, and I uh, I don't want to go into it further. You can get a hold of that. It's from American Atheist Press, and it's available on Amazon, and there's various other things you might like, but I go through it, and I'm pretty tough on it. Uh, and uh, so it's possible they're referring to that, and that certainly is not part of Judaism. Yeah, very weird book, topped only, I should say, by the Queen Jane version of the Bible. Uh, this sounds to me like it was written by a psychotic, uh, but let's leave that one aside. Uh, okay. Uh, does Numbers 5, 11 through 31, describe an abortion? Uh, this is this prescribes a ritual if a guy suddenly becomes jealous and thinks his wife's cheating on him uh he can bring her to a group of priests or whatever and uh, they will um mix uh some uh, substance ashes of something uh into water and make her drink it and if there's no effect She's innocent, but if she is an adulteress, it says her thigh will wither, uh, and uh, and apparently she won't be able to have kids. So, but it does not imply she's pregnant. It's just one of several similar ancient Mediterranean area trials by ordeal. Obviously, it's kind of like the thing in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they have this woman um, dressed up like a a witch with a carrot uh, tied around her face to look like the old witch nose. And says, uh, then the scientist says, uh, what are you doing? And they say, well, she's a witch. And they're going to find out because they're going to dunk her into uh, this pool and keep her down there. And uh, if she's, well, no, no, they, they're going to see if she sinks and drowns. And if she does, she's acquitted. But if she floats, she's a witch and they burn her. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but yeah, they had these ordeal tests, and that's what this is. It's, uh, uh, I suspect people that say it is about abortion are just trying to uh, um, say that, well, how can you Bible-believing Christians be against it if uh, the Bible tells you how to do it? But that's not the point of the passage. Of course, the Bible doesn't even mention abortion. Um Hey, uh, whence the notion of Peter as the bouncer at the pearly gates? Well, there's a great book uh, by um, uh, Arthur Drobs, I think you pronounce it. It's spelled D-R-E-W-S, uh, called The Legend of St. Peter. And American Atheist Press printed uh, Frank Zindler's translation of it. And he shows that uh, a lot of the imagery that eventually comes about in Christian legend about Peter being the keeper of the pearly gates, it reflects uh, Mithraism. 
uh, and having gates to the heavens and all that stuff. And it's pretty convincing. But wherever it came from, of course, its toehold in the Bible is the uh, passage in Matthew 16, is it? The confession of Peter. And uh, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but rather my Father in heaven. Uh, I say to you, you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is, you know, it won't be able to withstand the battering ram of the church, um, which also fits the later harrowing of hell myth, right? Uh, and uh, then he says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth, like legal decisions, halakhic decisions about clean and unclean, disciplinary matters, whatever you bind on heaven, lock on, uh, but whatever you bind on earth, like whatever door you lock, uh, it'll be uh, bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, of course, that's they're saying he has uh, plenty potentiary authority. Uh, he the decisions he is entrusted to make in the church, uh, God will uh, rubber stamp them. It doesn't mean that Peter is in heaven with the the keys to the gates of heaven, deciding who goes in or out. Though I admit that's not much of a, an extension of it. It is using the same imagery, but. The passage means to comment on Peter and his successors, I'm sure, um, exercising ecclesiastical authority on earth with the endorsement of heaven, not Peter uh, keeping the gates up in heaven. Uh, but So, sort of biblical, but not exactly. It's You can see where they got it from the Bible, though. Uh, let's see. Um, does... Mark 4, 11 through 12, uh, let me grab a, a New Testament here, does Mark 4, 11 through 12, and I opened right up to 1 Corinthians, <laughs> um, okay, Mark, Um, yeah, 4.11-12. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside everything is in parables. So, that's... Oh, and 12, uh, sorry. Uh, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn again and be forgiven, which seems to be a kind of a quote or paraphrase from uh, from uh, Isaiah 6, where God commissions the prophet to go out and uh, give the warnings to unrepentant Israel, you better shape up or I'm sicking those uh, Babylonians on you. Uh, but I know uh, something similar in Ezekiel too. And I can tell you right now, they're not going to listen, but at least nobody will be able to say they weren't warned. That's kind of the gist of it. And, uh, uh, and, and it looks like in that context, there's a kind of pessimistic sarcasm 
uh, that uh, we wouldn't want them to repent. Uh, you know, you're going to preach it to them, but uh, we wouldn't want them to change their ways, would we? And I, I usually am very uh, skeptical of claims that this or that Bible passage is meant ironically, but I think in context that one probably is. So that's being quoted. The disciples have asked Jesus, why do you teach in parables all the time, which is like very much like in the Gospel of John at the Last Supper, uh, that um, when Jesus says, don't worry, the time is coming when I won't speak to you in figures anymore, uh, but I'll just give you the straight stuff. And they say, okay, now we understand. It's the same sort of a issue. You know, apparently the point is, uh, aren't you, by being equivocal, reducing the chances of people getting what you're saying? Uh, and he says, well, yeah, yeah, I, I explain everything to you. You get it straight. But I don't do that for the outside uh, because I want to make it tough for them to understand it and repent. Oh, boy. Uh, New Testament interpreters don't like that much, right? And so some of them say, well, Jesus is being sarcastic. Or uh, maybe this is a mistaken um, in a translation of an Aramaic original where he was saying, uh, I use parables to get the point across more clearly, to say, don't you get my point? Here's an analogy. In fact, many of the parables do seem to be that way. Like, can you imagine anybody uh, lighting a lamp and then sticking it under a bushel basket? I mean, who would do that? Uh, and uh, no, no, you'd put it on the lampstand so it gives light to everybody that comes into the house. And the point would be, yeah, that would be pretty stupid. And Jesus uh, means to say, and yet that's what you do. Uh, you have this source of light and healing and wisdom that you could be sharing with people, but no, you'd keep it it uh, under your turban. Uh, and so, yeah, okay, I see. I never realized the irony of that. Well, A.M. Hunter, for instance, said, surely that's what Jesus meant. That's why anybody would use parables. But maybe not, right? Uh, you can also say that Jesus doesn't want to throw his pearls before swine, that he's like the Gnostics or the Sufis saying, what I have to say is not going to be easy for everybody to accept. So uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you're on my wavelength, you will understand what I'm talking about. But for the rest of you who might, uh, let's say, want to crucify me as a blasphemer, uh, don't worry, move along. There's nothing to see here. Okay, now does uh, that's a little uh, blathering. Uh, does this contradict Mark 4? 22. Uh, let's see, I just lost my place somehow. 422. Oh, well, in fact, I didn't even remember this. Let's go back up to 21. He said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not on a stand? For there's nothing, and here's the passage, for there is nothing hid except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, okay, is that a contradiction? Actually, I don't think so. 
because it's once again saying, use your discernment. I'm not saying these things just to hear myself talk. Uh, there is something here that is, is secret. Can you ferret it out? Just like in the book of Revelation, this calls for wisdom. Let him who has wisdom understand, let him reckon the number of the beast, for it is the number of a particular man. His number is 666. Get it? Uh, and so I, I think it's almost two ways of saying the same thing. Yeah, there's something hidden here, but it's intended to be understood if you're on my wavelength, and it's up to you whether or not you are. Uh, so um, there's a great sermon I wish I had on tape from my old pastor, Don Morris, about uh, him who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's, he, uh, he was basing this, I think, partly on a sermon uh, by Meister Eckhart called The Aristocrat. You got to read Meister Eckhart. It's pretty amazing stuff. Uh, he uh, he says that Jesus is aiming. Well, Don was saying that Jesus is aiming only at the aristocrats, the cream of the crop, who can understand, like the fertile soil in the parable of the soils. Uh, those are his desired audience. Now you may say, well, that seems like elitism, isn't it? That's Gnosticism, right? Uh, we're not going to spill the beans to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. I'm never going to get it. Uh, and Don said, no, because who says you are not one of the aristocrats? All that kind of predestinarian language uh, is, it boils down to what Bultmann called a dualism of decision. Uh, you determine whether you have ears to hear. And, uh, of course, that's the point. It's just like uh, to fit in with the holiday season. It's just like when Ebenezer Scrooge is brought to that cemetery by the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And uh, he points to this snow-covered uh, gravestone and uh, wa wants Scrooge to uh, brush the snow off. And he says, before I do, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, granted, men's courses... Uh, foreshadow certain ends, but if those courses be departed from, mustn't the ends change? Uh, and he says, why show me this? Uh, and of course, it's his name on the gravestone. He says, why show me this if I am past all hope? Uh, yeah, that's exactly the point of all that stuff. What is Jesus taunting people that can't hear uh, what he's saying? That's grotesque. I mean, it's a little hard to imagine any Christian portraying Jesus that way. Nah, 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 nah. Uh, no, of course, he must be uh, saying, well, uh, only the, the cultivated soil has the word uh, strike root and blossom. Is that you? Uh, well, he's trying to get somebody to say, well, I, I want it to be. Uh, or like the uh, father of the deaf-mute epileptic in Mark says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So, interesting stuff. Okay, this is from uh, uh, Varakana Asura in San Francisco, a self-described Hindu apologist. I love this guy. This is Dr. Price Foster, an illuminator. I don't know if I deserve that. Uh, in the podcast of November 27, uh, 27. 
2015, there was a question regarding the Jerome Bible commentary relating to Romans 11, 9 through 11, and if this work whether this work stated that this section of Romans was an interpolation. I have a copy of the New Jerome Bible Commentary, edited by Raymond Brown, uh, Joseph Fitzmaier, and Jerome Murphy O'Connor. This section runs from pages 856 to 862, and there's no higher textual criticism in this section or a reference to Jerome stating that this was later added. Um, as an aside, I suppose what makes this new is that it is a Catholic work which references Calvin here in the spirit of ecumenism and not anathema. Yeah, that is pretty neat. However, I have the uh, the original Jerome Bible commentary uh, of which that is a, a new edition, and I think I'm seeing the same uh, passage. And uh, if you look close, uh, it does talk about it being a kind of an interpolation. Uh, let me just read you this uh, little snippet. Um, ew. Let's see. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. To some commentators, for instance, Pierre Benoit, um, Romans 9 through 11, though an authentic Pauline comp composition is a, quote, foreign body, unquote, in the letter added later by some editor. It is supposed to interrupt the continuity of Romans 12 through 15 and Romans 5 through 8, for the former is supposed to be a baptismal homily that follows aptly on Romans 5 through 8, in which baptism and its effects play such a large part. However, the reasons for treating chapters 9 through 11 as a foreign body have been scarcely convincing. Uh, many centuries ago, John Calvin succinctly stated the connection of Romans 9 through 11 with the preceding part of the letter. Uh, quote, if this, the teaching of chapters 1 through 8, be the doctrine of the law and the prophets, why is it that the Jews reject it? Commentary on Romans 9, 1. Um, this question must have been put to Paul by contemporary Gentiles, too. I am not sure what Benoit thought the, uh, the, uh, uh, what was ineffective about those arguments or even what the arguments were, but uh, notice the uh, slippery apologetic approach, uh, the maximal conservative approach of Benoit there, B-E-N-O-I-T. Uh, he says, well, it doesn't fit here, so it must not have been original to, to the letter. But uh, that doesn't mean Paul didn't write it. it just didn't belong here. Well, um, I tend to go with uh, with uh, W.C. von Manen, who said, yeah, darn right, it's an interpolation. But Paul didn't write any of it anyway. Romans is a patchwork quilt. Uh, and, um, and one big reason is that Marcion's edition of the epistle did not have Romans 9 through 11. Another is, as von Manen pointed out, uh, 
you have Israel, Israel, Israel all the time, uh, only maybe one or two mentions in this long passage of Jews, whereas in most of the rest of the letter, it's always Jews, not Israel. So why would that change? And uh, he says, well, it would indicate uh, the uh, preferred idiom of a different author. Uh, so I, I tend to think that uh, Van Manen was closer to the truth, but Benoit there quoted here is, is saying that it's a, a, an interpolation of a Pauline fragment into an alien context. And uh, again, the Jerome biblical commentary isn't endorsing that view, but it does have enough respect for it to mention it. Okay, uh, let's see, then back to uh, back to uh, Varokana. He says, as a contribution to the advancement of geekdom, I went to my well-worn but dusty hardback collection of the Church Fathers and drew out the volume on Jerome, finding, oh boy, I probably should have read this before, uh, finding references to Romans 9 through 11 in the index of texts, I donned Nivata Kavacha armor as protective gear before diving into the depths of his infamous uh, psychic pool of peevishness where the fruits of the spirit are <laughs> are but algae on the surface. Even in my youth, when I spent years studying the works of the church fathers closely, his hypocrisy and deviation from the teaching of Jesus always annoyed me. He should have stuck with his painted Roman chicks, which was the only place he turned the other cheek in actuality. <laughs> yeah, boy, I love this guy. Uh, by the way, we're going to have a uh, an article uh, by him in uh, the Journal of Higher Criticism. Okay, um, uh, I can report that I found nothing in the missives of the pyrite saint, you know, fool's gold, which indicated he held the view that this section was an interp interpolation. But then again, my attention was clouded by the contradiction of his pious proclamations about care for the poor I tripped over when following the trail through against Vigilantius with the reality that he turned over a runaway slave, letter 5, to Florentinus. This We're talking about Jerome here, uh, who may have been branded and crucified because of Jerome's actions. Perhaps his Greek failed him when translating Matthew 2540. Uh, what the heck's that? Let me grab this. Uh, that's uh, the uh, Matthean apocalypse, right? Uh, uh, 20... Oh, I think I know what this is. Have mercy on me and I will repay the debt. Is that it? Nope, nope. Uh, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you for mentioning my email about uh, across Atlantic ice on the air, but I realized I was amiss in making a claim and not backing it up with some sources. In reference to the Inuit eradication of the original Viking settlers in Greenland as they migrated into this territory, this is proposed in The Vikings by Robert uh, Wernick, uh, Kindle location 1815, 
and also The Vikings, A History by Robert Ferguson, Kindle Location, 5037. Since I'm basically familiar with Viking sagas, I can say that they do not appear to provide any contemporary textual evidence that this was ever the case that I have ever noticed. Uh, while I liked the film Dances with Wolves, I agree it is a fantasy, a more realistic film anthropologically that I liked much better, though not high budget, was Windwalker, 1980. The noble savage myth with the white man as the snake and the Garden of Turtle Island motif in the hippie view of the tribes is used like a magic charm of protection by many sources. I think of the book The Sun Came Down, The History of the World, as my Blackfoot elders told it by Percy Bullshild, B-U-L-L-S-C-H-I-L-D, which claims in its preference, quote, What of all the smear that is written about all the many natives of all these Americas? Many things that are so untrue of the natives, things the people... Uh, have done to us and say the natives have done it. Example, savagery, murdering, uh, dirty, lust to kill, unclean, warlike, human sacrificing, lying, hatred, and many more. All of these things the natives never heard of until the white man came here to teach us of them. I guess I got the wrong accent, page two. But strangely enough, uh, through his legends, there's lots of violence. I suppose he simply psychologically edited these contractions. Or contradictions, maybe? That being said... In the interest of full disclosure, I would much rather be a 17-year-old Sioux or Blackfoot in the horse time, about 1760, than live now. Or perhaps to live in the tribal era of the Rig Veda, when I could hop on a horse, quaff the Soma, and go off with a spear to raid, to raid the Dasyas for cows, mainly as pious gifts for the Brahmin and the Devas, of course. We do have to have our priorities straight. These two great acts, the raining of arrows and the humiliation of foes, are the givers of happiness. They, the Aryan warriors, are deadly either in fight on in a fight on horseback or in, the, in hand to hand fight. He has put the foes to sleep and driven them away. Do you, Soma, drive away the enemies and unbelievers? Rigveda, Book nine ninety seven fifty four. Thank you, Varokana. Uh, let's see, let's see. Uh, this is Jackson from Canada, and I'm a long-time listener with a question about the dating of First Clement. On the Wikipedia overview for First Clement, it says that the phrase sudden and repeated misfortunes and hindrances which have befallen us, one, one, is uh, as taken as a reference to persecutions under Domitian. Why is it believed that this is a reference to persecution under Domitian and not something else? Uh, let me just pause. In fact, uh, that's even a better question because now historians are not so sure there was a Domitianic persecution. Um, looks like the writer of Revelation expected there would be, but uh, it's not that clear that uh, there's much evidence for that. Okay. Uh, and why does the author refer to the Corinthian church as ancient in 47.6? Wasn't the Corinthian church relatively recent when this was written? 
Um, let me pause there. Uh, and you're right about the sufferings. I think that's that's uh, assuming the date of uh, a particular date rather than the grounds for it. But many people, many scholars have dated First uh, Clement from 60 to 90 A.D., uh, same sort of thing with uh, with the Hebrews, a letter to the Hebrews, some date it that way, some think it's from before the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, but it depends on when those who date this, uh, uh, those who uh, think this refers to the Domitianic persecution, it depends on when they date the letter in general, because depending on where they date it, they might say, well, what was going on then that he might be referring to? But uh, it's it's really uh, just pin the tail on the donkey really as to uh, uh, all of these. I mean, you got the same problem throughout the Old Testament prophets, uh, for instance, where, well, it sounds like he's referring to somebody invading. I don't know, it could be the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Martians. Uh, and it's, so I think they're taking a stab at it. Also about the, the ancientness of the church. Well, if you picture the Corinthian church being founded a la the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, as sometime in the 50s A.D., then if uh, if First Clement is written a few decades later, it might just be a way of saying the venerable church, because at least it's relatively early compared to the time of the writer. But I am inclined to think, as you imply, that this means that um, First Clement is a lot later than that. And in fact, I think it is more um, further on into the second century, partly because of what it says about the deaths of Peter and Paul, that they were executed out of envy uh, or jealousy. Who's? Uh, what? Uh, rival factions of Christians that were ratting on each other? Well, look, uh, that's possible, I admit, if you take a radical F.C. Bauer kind of a uh, position and think of a, a real vehement hostility between the factions of Peter and Paul, then you might interpret First Clement as supporting that, saying that it was the though Clement doesn't seem to I mean, you know, he's going along with the uh, hunky-dory, peachy keen, everything was harmonious between all the apostles myth. Uh, but it might be a kind of a, an unintended uh, moment of frankness about what really happened. But it seems to me odd that he would say that. Uh, and I think that uh, a better referent for the uh, deadly jealousy is what we find over and over again in the later second century apocryphal acts of the apostles uh, where the the apostles come into a town uh, one by one and they preach the encratite gospel the the celibacy gospel that original sin was sex uh, and there shouldn't have been a whole human race. It should have just been Adam and Eve. They would have. That's all God would have needed to keep the garden. They wouldn't have procreated. They would have continued to eat from the tree of life and lived forever. Wouldn't need to replace themselves via procreation. 
But since they did have sex and have kids, that led to a huge number of humans who divided up along class and ethnic uh, lines and so on and led to all kinds of crimes and hatreds and so on. Uh, and therefore, we got to get ourselves back to the garden. Like the Shakers, uh, the recently deceased American sect, who said, yeah, to be a Christian, you've got to renounce sex. Well, um, uh, that's what the Encratites thought, uh, from Encrateo, uh, self-control, meaning continence. Uh, and uh, so the the apostles like Paul, Thomas, John, various other ones in different acts start preaching this and usually noble women, uh, the wives of officials, hear this preaching and it really hits home with them. And so they suddenly start locking the bedroom door. Like, what the hell is going on here, uh, Sylvia? And he says, well, I now know that this is sinful. I'm now a Christian. And that means I have to renounce that filthy habit. Uh, and he says, who told you this? Oh, the apostle Paul, who just came into town. Ah, Paul, huh? And so the understandably upset husband goes to his buddy, the king or the governor, whoever it may be, and says, look, there's this charlatan in town who is alienating women from their husbands, including my wife. Uh, you got to do something about this. And uh, his friend, the official, has the apostle thrown in jail, and eventually he gets martyred. And this happens again and again. There are like five or six major uh uh, books of uh, apocryphal books of Acts. I think that's almost got to be what's being referred to here was the je the jealousy of pagan unconverted husbands that got him killed. And so we're dealing with a, a significantly later period from the standpoint of which the uh, founding of the Corinthian church would have been, uh, quote, ancient, unquote. Uh, let's see, uh, and, uh, back to, uh, uh, Jackson's question. He says, I'm also wondering about the passage. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm also wondering about the passage in 42, four through five. Uh, so preaching everywhere in country and town, they appointed their first fruits, their first converts, when they had proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons unto them that should believe. And this they did in no new fashion, for indeed it had been written concerning bishops and deacons from very ancient times. For thus saith the Scripture in a certain place, I will appoint their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith. Uh, what script? Uh, what scripture is the author referring to here? And once again, why does he say that an ancient scripture is referring to bishops and deacons? I thought that was a relatively recent thing when this was written, at least in terms of Christian bishops and deacons. Is it possible the generally accepted dating, A.D. 80 and A.D. 140, according to Wikipedia, could be incorrect? Yeah, I think they are. I think this is just a very loose memory quote from somewhere in the pastoral epistles where it lists the qualifications for bishops and deacons. And uh, so I, I think he's, that's my guess. And of course, these books would have been pretty recent at the, given the later date of uh, of first Clement. And, uh, but uh, he wants to give them the gravity of ancient uh, 
scripture. Yeah, let's see. Thank you, Jackson. No, no, here's here's another one. This is from Martin Gatt from Malta. Has it ever come to your mind that Simon Magus might have been the actual historical Jesus as plausibly as he could have been the historical Paul? That is, I say that the historical Paul was Simon Magus, and Martin's saying, well, maybe he was the original Jesus. That might well explain both... Uh, his or the later Simonian claim that he was the incarnated savior sent to save the Jews and, and for the Mandean belief that Jesus and Paul were basically the same personality and arch rivals of John the Baptist of whom the pseudo Clementines in the Mandean book of John deem him as a Messiah, a Christ-like figure. Do you see a link between Simon Magus slash Paul and the Egyptian mentioned in Joseph? Cephas and confused with Paul in the book of Acts? Well, uh, uh, oh boy, what's in, um, oh my God, what's her name? I just read it. Uh, Lena Einhorn's uh, books. Uh, and uh, she, um, she thinks that uh, when the book of Acts has somebody ask, the uh, Roman centurion, ask Paul if he is not that Egyptian that led a bunch of terrorists out in the desert, that she's trying to say, well, he was. Um, but uh, the but uh, Luke is trying to, or whoever wrote Acts, is trying to sanitize the early Christians politically. And so he is, has brought, he's created the scene in order to have it uh to distinguish for the reader that, oh, no, no, Paul wasn't the Egyptian Messiah, uh, because he was, and uh, Acts is trying to throw him off the track. Yeah, uh, so she she does think that uh, Paul was the Egyptian, uh, and that the whole uh, business, well, I guess she says this, I know some do, that... Uh, that um, Acts has gotten all the information about uh, uh, Judas of Galilee, Judas, and um, and uh, the Egyptian from Josephus. I think that's uh, that's been pretty well demonstrated. Um, so there's certainly reason to think that. And uh, you're right. Uh, the whole business about Simon having claimed to have appeared in Judea as the son and to have seemed to suffer, though he didn't. That's, you know, docetic view of the crucifixion of Jesus. That, uh, that, and, and the association with the harlot, Helena, uh, that does kind of remind one of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Magdalene meaning hairdresser, implying the madam of a brothel. And, uh, his, uh, offering salvation by grace. Yeah, that's, uh, that's possible. It's an interesting theory. And, uh, and Simon and Jesus are both supposed to be disciples of John the Baptist and so on. So, yeah, that is a very good possibility. Get to work on it. Um, Jesse Toller, staunch Bible geek. Um, assuming a Pauline mythic Jesus 
uh, worship was spread over Asia Minor or Greece first, what is the most likely geographical origin for histor- for a historical Jesus tale? So, you know, wh- I'm sorry, this is not Jesse. I'm sorry, this is Alexander Nye. Uh, so where did Jesus get historicized, in other words? Uh, well, I'd say uh, on this assumption that, that uh, some share that Christianity began uh, as an allegorical tale in Alexandria, Egypt, though that may not be so, it may be much older than that and based on uh, the sacred king myth of ancient Israel and so on. But anyway... You could uh, see Palestine as the uh, place where the whole thing was Judaized. Like, it's very plain that the Last Supper, the words of institution, are reflective of a fertility god, Dionysus and Osiris. This is my body, this is my blood. And yet there is this half-hearted attempt to make it seem like it's a Passover feast, which it isn't. Uh, so that makes you wonder. But, of course, they you could have a historical Jesus distinct from a Jewish Jesus, though it, it's not clear that they'd be different, but the the one might not have coincided with the other. I'm going to be thinking about that as I work on the book, um, Judaizing Jesus. But if Arthur Draves is right, and that Jesus was historicized as um, a tactic in the polemical uh, struggle over institutional authority that people began to say that their predecessors were actually appointed by Jesus on earth as opposed to Gnostic visionary claims. Oh, Jesus appeared to me in a a vision, Paul and Simon Magus. Then you got to ask, uh, where would this have arisen? And uh, I, uh, since this, we know this argument was going back and forth between emerging Catholicism and Gnosticism, I, I should think it would have been in a uh, Hellenized Syrian uh, area, uh, and uh, like Antioch where there were plenty of people that spoke Greek and were Hellenistic in their culture, but also a strong Jewish presence. So that would be my guess, though it could really have been anywhere in Hellenized Asia Minor or Europe, since I think Drobs is right, and that is the most likely key, where um, a Gnostic mythic Jesus was historicized. But it's that's really just a, kind of an educated guess with the uh, stress on guess. Oh, let's see. Okay, here's the last one for today. Jesse Toller. Not sure if you're interested in answering Bible questions until after Halloween. I'm sorry, that shows how old this one is. Uh, But I have been reading, so just before Halloween he wrote this, I've been reading through the Amazing Colossal Apostle again and focusing, or glutton for punishment, and focusing on Colossians as a heterodox epistle. 
I have the funniest feeling that the author wants us to think that he is writing from heaven, that he is not Paul the itinerant preacher, but dead and walking with Christ on some other planet or heavenly place. Any thoughts? Well, yeah, I I think that uh, these remarks in Colossians, and you haven't seen my face, even though according to Philemon, Paul knew the people in Colossae, Um, remarks like this, if you're risen with Christ, keep your eyes focused on uh, heaven where Christ is at the right hand of God and, and all that. It does kind of sound to me like the writer is trying to be Paul, but knows that the readers know that Paul is dead, and so he's kind of channeling Paul. And I don't know that he's trying to say that, but it seems to me that is the scene of writing. Uh, and uh, it's kind of like Jesus appearing in a vision to Paul in Corinth saying, uh, don't worry, uh, you'll be safe. I got a lot of sympathizers here. Uh, and so I uh, think that's true, too. It's it's not what the author is trying to tell us or he'd be more explicit uh, because I can well imagine these guys wouldn't uh, hesitate to say, you know, here is, well, it's, it's like the letters from Jesus in the book of Revelation. Uh, the book isn't saying Jesus wrote them sitting at a desk in Nazareth. He's, he's from heaven, right? So I I can well imagine that uh, that no one would have had a problem writing such a, uh, an epistle and ascribing it to the heavenly Paul. So I don't think he's making that overt, but it seems to me that the, the implied author is someone who is, de- who is thinking of Paul that way. Uh, very similar, very similar to Philippians, where it seems to me just so clear that the writer knows, not only knows that Paul is dead, he's been martyred, but he knows that the readers are equally aware of it, and he's trying to pass this off as a letter he wrote before he died, though it implies he is dead. Uh, He says, well, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me uh, when I face uh, Nero. Uh, I I might uh, die and go to be with Christ, so that'd be good. I wouldn't mind that. Uh, But I I think I'll be released because uh, you could sure benefit from more of my ministry. And and yeah, that's what's going to happen. And I think that is a kind of a winking reference to the fact that Paul did go on to be with Christ through martyrdom, but his ministry is continuing through these pseudepigraphical epistles written as if Paul. I think it's the same sort of uh, thing going on there. Paul the Bodhisattva who lingers on the threshold of heaven in order to give uh, other people a, a leg up. Well, let's see. Okay, the next one is so long, I think I'm going to leave that for next time. Uh, Thank you for being with me on The Bible Geek, and I hope that uh, in the next couple of days you will be able to order Holy Fable Volume 2 on Amazon. And uh, I think you will, so you might uh, check in there. Uh, It's been sent to them, and we think it's all wrapped up. Also, let me know if if any of you would be interested in having uh, buying paper copies of 
the revived Journal of Higher Criticism, no doubt also from Amazon. My plan is to make it available electronically, um, but some folks like me uh, don't tend to use that too much and prefer paper copies. I'm trying to decide whether I could do that. Uh, I don't know. So it, it would at least be another f ingredient in the stew of decision if you would tell me what you think of that. So, okay, I'll uh, see you soon on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.